So I'd like to invite Emma forward. You can give her a big round of applause, why not? So Emma is going to be talking on John chapter 2, and I'm just going to pray for you, if you don't mind. Lord, thank you for Emma. Thank you that you've given her the gift to give us a message this afternoon. I thank you that you have instilled something in her heart to speak to us about, and I pray that we will have open ears and open hearts to receive that message from you through her. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I wanted to show you a little video today, not just yet, but a little bit into my talk. Um, if anybody's ever watched The Chosen, I thought it would be really good to show a snippet from it. But I am talking about an encounter with Jesus, the wedding party. And if you've got your Bibles with you, I'm going to read from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Okay, so just give me a chance there. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So I'm just going to start at uh, verse number one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, and each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, when I was doing some research into this, this event, this the wedding, I just didn't realize how many layers there was to this actual story. So I'm, I'm going to give a bit of a, a clause here, and I apologize if I seem like I'm going back and forth, back and forth. I'm not going to go through the story chronologically. I've actually picked out just thematic the, you know, themes throughout this, and I'm terrible. I like to give a bit of a spoiler. But really, I'm just going to start off with talking about the Jewish wedding and the tradition behind that, because I want to talk about the importance of that. Why is this mentioned in the Bible? Why is this when Jesus decides to do his first miracle, his first sign. And part of that is it's good to look into the tradition behind the actual wedding. I also want to take a look at the character of Jesus. And there's a few, few um, themes that come through when I was reading through it. Firstly, the master of the banquet. I want to take a look through that kind of idea and that role. The bridegroom role. I want to take a look through that too. And then I want to also take a look through one as a Christian myself the idea of Jesus as our savior and where that comes through through this story and of course the importance of wine okay as well so let's take a look firstly at the actual Jewish wedding and what this actually meant now I did a bit of research and I was very very cautious about going down a rabbit hole which when I do research tends to happen quite a bit but I did a bit of research into the Jewish tradition and um 
What I found was when I was looking at this, we're looking at a special occasion, but it's not just about the bride and the groom. I know that in our Western culture, and especially in the 21st century, it's the bride and groom that now are the people who put the wedding together. They're usually the ones that pay for it. They're the ones who invite the guests. When traditionally, well, I know back at home in Ireland anyway, it was the, the bride's family that would have done that. And then, of course, the, how that would work. But that wasn't the case here. So in this passage, it was actually not just in this time of history. It wasn't just the bride and the groom, but it was also for the family. Okay? During this period of history, more emphasis was actually placed on the family and community rather than the individuals. Um, and as we know, this is a tradition that's been practiced still to this day. Traditionally, the bride and groom would have been probably quite young, maybe in their teens, and this would have been more than likely an arranged marriage um, between the families and the clan. Those, and if you're not sure what a clan is, we're talking about families that are connected together, usually with a common purpose or they're perhaps connected through marriage in some way. And the reason this would have been the case would have been to consolidate wealth, of course, within the community, but also to avoid any introduction and dilution of foreign beliefs within the structure as well. I find when I was doing my research, I noticed that they usually had a dowry. This is like a large sum of money. Um, in Hebrew, this was called a mohar, just for a bit of interest. And it was paid by the father of the groom to the father of the bride. And this was because the bride's family was about to lose a very valuable asset um, who would have helped out with all the household tasks. The groom would have also given gifts to the family members. This is in Hebrew called the matan. And this didn't have to be financial. This could have been um, jewels or acts of service. And this would have been given in addition to the diary. Now, at the culture at this time, there would have been two ceremonies. And lots of different traditions actually still embrace this. Um, I've got a friend who's a Muslim and actually had the privilege of actually going to her betrothal service, not in the mosque, but more the party they have afterwards as a result. And then I actually got to go to her wedding, which was a year later down the line. But in Jewish culture at this time, they did the same thing. They would have had a betrothal service and then they would have had a wedding ceremony. Now, at the betrothal, the woman would have been legally married, but she would have remained then in her father's house until the actual wedding ceremony. And at the wedding ceremony, the bride would have been brought to her father's house, from her, sorry, from her father's house to the groom's house. And this would have been when the legal tie would have been consummated. Now, the actual, sorry, the actual service itself, the wedding service, would have also been about a week long. Okay, so that just gives you a bit of an indication of the amount of wine they may have needed and the amount of food that may have needed too. Now, in a few minutes, I'm going to show you just the past, just the, a clip from The Chosen. And in this passage, or in this video, you're also going to see in the passage, we actually see that Jesus and his disciples and his mother have been invited to the wedding. But social disaster has struck, and a social oversight. They've run out of wine for the wedding. And this, Tim Keller talks about, would have been a massive shame for the family. Before I go any further, let's just watch a bit of the video. Thank you for that. So I just wanted to show you that just from, and if you haven't watched The Chosen, please do. Um, just as you're reading these passages and watching it dramatized on TV, it just almost brings it even more to life. But um, 
I want to show that video because they've, they've emphasized quite a few points that I actually want to basically talk about today. And I thought watching a video, you can kind of see where I'm, what my point of view here is going. Firstly, Tim Keller, when I was reading his book, Encounters with Jesus, talks about the shame upon the family. Remember, I said this wedding wasn't just to do with the individuals. It was the entire family. If you heard there, the master of the feast actually didn't just address one side of the family. He addressed the bridegroom, the groom, and both their families. Now, I remember when I was getting married, um, obviously the most important thing was marrying Scott, but uh, <laughs> um, there was another thing that I kind of was a little bit um, going on about. I lived with the Andersons at the time, and they remember me talking about this, and it was the food. I wanted to make sure for my wedding that everyone would have enough food, and only that it would be delicious, you know? And there's a reason why this is probably in my mind. Um, my parents, when they go to a wedding and they come back, the only thing they ever talk about is the food. And my cousin, I hope he doesn't hear this talk today, but <clears throat> I'll not give his name, but for 20 years ago when he was getting married, he decided to have a buffet. Mental note, never have a buffet for a wedding, by the way. He ran out of food. And half the guests didn't have enough food on the first round, by the way. So... In my mind, I was like, we're going to make sure the food is good. And I do like food. I, I walked away. I, I remember the dessert of my wedding. I can still taste it. Gem and James, I can still taste the dessert in your wedding. I was excited about it when I seen the, the actual menu. But my parents still talk about my cousin's wedding. Now, don't get me wrong. They don't ridicule it. They don't, there's no shame. But it's, oh, every time they've got an invitation, let's hope it's not like that wedding. So it's talked about. But in this culture... It's completely different. It's a shame and honor culture. And it wouldn't just have fallen upon the individuals. It would have fallen upon, the shame would have fallen upon the entire family, the bride and the groom's family. Now, whatever it was, in essence, they miscalculated the amount of wine needed for the duration of the wedding and the number of guests, whether they just didn't have enough money or whether it was they just kept inviting people because it would have been the community that would have been invited to this wedding. And as I've mentioned, it would have gone on for an entire week. So you can see that causes a problem. Not only that, in this culture, when I was doing a bit more research, the guests would have contributed financially. My mom and dad have a rule. When they're invited to a wedding, so this, anyone's having a wedding, you need to invite my parents, okay? They don't give you gifts, by the way. They get you an envelope of money. 100 euro per person, an extra 50 thrown in just to make sure you cover the costs, okay? So if you're getting mom and dad to cover, it's 250 euro, okay? You're generally going to get that. But in this custom, that's what they did. Money was given. So the guests would have expected to get wine as well because they financially contributed to it as well. And that would have just added to that shame and ridicule for the families and the host. Now, one of my themes I want to take a look at was Jesus is the savior of the world. Just one of those layers. And when Mary came to Jesus to ask him to do something, she may not have been expecting a miracle. That might not have been what she was thinking of. But she knew he could do something. Or maybe she did. We don't know what happened in his childhood as such, what miracles Joseph and her and the family may have witnessed, they may have thought. But she did know he could do something. Um, and as we know from verse 11, this is Jesus' first miracle, or if you're going to go exactly what the words say, is the first of his signs. Verse 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this became a signifier, the beginning of his public ministry. 
I don't understand. Why was this the signifier? Why is this the actual miracle? Because this is not a life or death situation. No one's sick. No one's dying. They're about to run out of wine and the party's going to end. So essentially, Jesus is doing a miracle to keep the party going. All right? Not to be flippant, but it does sound like that to an extent. But the answer here is actually in verse 4. Mary's come in verse 3 to Jesus and says, there is no wine. And in verse 4, he replies, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I'm going to come back to the common woman. Why does that, uh, what does that have to do with me? But I want to focus on that last bit. My hour has not yet come. And this is the reason why this was significant. In John's gospel, whenever Jesus spoke about his hour, he's actually referring to his death. The main reason why he came here, which since the beginning of this meeting has been mentioned so many times, because that's basically, the, basically that's our focus here. This is the reason why we classify as Christians and we're saved. He came to earth as a baby, born in Bethlehem. He was raised as a child in Nazareth. He was without sin. He lived a life in ministry, and he died on the cross for our sins. He rose again, and he ascended into heaven. But if you take a look at the other references in John, in John 8, I'm only going to use three here, but in John 8, verse 20, Jesus in the temple rebuking the Pharisees, pretty much telling them, you don't know who God is. And it says in John 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Another example, after the triumphant entry to Jerusalem of the feast, disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, and he says to them, sorry, in John 12, verse 23, the hour has not come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Sorry, I read that wrong. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Again, in John 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved one of his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Mary comes to Jesus and his response to her appears cold. When I read it in my mind, I was hearing, woman, what does this have to do with me? I think I emphasized too much on the woman there, but I did a bit more research on this because that kind of bothered me. Why does Jesus appear to be so cold to his own mother? But he wasn't actually. I'm reading it wrong. Because the word woman was actually a mark of respect at this time. It wasn't a rebuke. He loved his mother. He adored her. He respected her. But I need to tell you this. He was not doing this because she asked him to. He was not doing it because he was answering to her will. He was submitting to the will of God. And I kind of do wonder what was going through Jesus' mind at this time as well. He knows his purpose. He knows he's headed to the cross. He knows he will suffer pain and death for the sins of the world. And he's probably looking past Mary towards the cross. And this is a reminder of what was to come. Jesus has to die. And it was probably always on his mind. I've mentioned those examples there where he mentioned the hour. I do think about not just his wedding feast, but you know when he was raising Lazarus from the dead? Was it going through his mind there? I'm going to come back because I'm starting to digress a little bit. These events have all pointed to his life and make us think about his purpose, the death and the cross, which is where he's headed here. If he starts to do these miracles, he will in effect be announcing, he'll be starting a chain of events that would be heading straight to the cross of what's to come. And that's why this is the first sign. That is why this is a signifier. Because that's what this is signifying, is signifying his death. And as I was doing research through this and thinking and pondering on it and reading Timothy Keller's book and a few others, 
I could see these different layers coming out of this actual story um, of the wedding feast. The next one is the master of the banquet was another one I was looking at. Um, my next point, I've titled it as Jesus as the master of the feast of the banquet. It was a master of the banquet's feast's responsibility to ensure the wine lasted all week. And as we can clearly see, this guy failed in his job. <clears throat> but Jesus comes in as a hero of the story. And he comes in and he saves the day. He is the one that ensures there's enough wine for the festivities. He is the one who turns the water into wine and keeps the, the festivities going. As Tim Keller puts it, Jesus is saying, as it were, I am the true master of the banquet. I am the Lord of the feast. Now, it's funny because if you look at different examples through the Bible, this is actually mentioned in Isaiah as well. <clears throat> I'm going to mention this feast. We know of another feast that is mentioned in the Bible that highlights this. The feast that is coming in the end days. In Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8, this is what it says. On this mountain, Mount Sinai, sorry, I said that wrong, Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, or of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is swept over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken." That is referencing Revelations 19, verse 6 to 10, which we would have known as the marriage feast of the Lamb, and the marriage supper even. This is where Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom, and we are his church is referred to as the bride. It says in those verses, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great magnitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's us. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen and his righteous deeds of saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said this, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. So that's basically obviously going further ahead to that other. So that just emphasizes he is the, the master of the banquet. And I do apologize if I, fear to be, if I appear to be coming back and forth in my points. They all kind of thread together, okay? But I want to just go to my next point, and that's Jesus is a new wine. So I want to go back to Mary, where Mary had just informed in verse 3, um, Jesus, that they had no wine. Now, interesting, wine in the scriptures is actually a symbol of joy, so when Mary said they had no wine, this really emphasizes basically what life is like today for people who don't have Jesus. They don't have that joy. Jesus is that new wine, and we need him. He is the only one who can bring real and lasting joy. Now, I showed you the video because I wanted to talk about the purification jars. Okay, So all of this does link in. In verse 6, they were mentioned there was three large stone vessels containing 20 to 30 gallons of water. Now, I know that Thomas mentioned why they use the, um, basically, the stone. These vessel jars were actually used for purification, to allow the Jewish people to cleanse themselves from any impurity or sin. Defilement is usually the word that gets used for that one. Um, we know about the story of the Samaritan. You know, the Levi priest was walking past the, the actual um, young man that was assaulted on the side of the road. It was only the Samaritan who came to help, but the Levi priest walked past, because if he touched him, 
he was on his way to the temple, he, would not have been, he wouldn't have been pure. So this was actually very, very important for the Jewish people when they go into worship. So the use of the purification temp vessels are actually really interesting. And for us, if you want to take a look at them as a symbol, it's highlighting our need to be atoned. And that word atoned I'm getting at is how our sins need to be forgiven. This act is again pointing towards Jesus' death on the cross, an act he must do if we are ever to enter God's kingdom. Our hearts are deceitful. The world tells us that we should follow our hearts. No, we should not. Our hearts are deceitful. We are full of sin. And if we're not sure what that word sin is, I've always in my mind defined it as disobedience against God. And we are sinful. And we would be fooling ourselves if we turned around and said that we're not sinful, or we'd be fooling ourselves if we turned around and said, well, I'm not as bad as him, because sin is sin in the eyes of God, no matter what. It's disobedience. In Romans 3, verse 23 to 24, it says this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that the human heart is so deceitful, and as I said, I think we're foolish if we turn around and said we're not as bad as that person, because we are all capable, under the correct conditions, not the right conditions, the correct conditions, to do unspeakable things that would, and all because we are sinful. And it says there in that, in that verse there, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, the jars are really symbolic. In Old Testament, it would have been that lamb was brought as a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people when they wanted to basically be forgiven of their sins. Well, the use of the purification jars in this case is actually saying we're replacing all of those Old Testament sacrificial systems. The ultimate blood sacrifice has actually arrived. That's Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. In that verse I mentioned a few minutes ago where it talks about in Revelation, the, um, obviously I mentioned the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. This is the ultimate Lamb, the Lamb that is, not, that is without sin, the Lamb that will actually basically wipe away all of those sacrificial systems. There's no need to bring the Lamb to the temple anymore. He's going to do it on the cross and then that's it, it's done. I love this from Timothy Keller, and I know, I've, I know I've taken quite a bit from his point. The book is good if you haven't read it, okay? But it says here, I have come to live a life you should have lived, and die a death you should have died. Timothy Keller said that's almost what Jesus was saying. You should have lived that life, but this is also the death that you should, have, you should be having. John 3, verses 16 to 18. Nicodemus meets with Jesus, and he's having this conversation. I don't want to go too far. I had this another encounter, but... It says here in that verse, which is really well known, these two, three verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Should not perish. We're not going to hell, we're going to heaven. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, and whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This shows how Jesus takes something ordinary and makes it extraordinary. Not that I want to, you know, basically take away how special a wedding is, because we're going to experience that next week when we see Oliver and Elizabeth do that for 25 years. It's amazing. But he's taking this and making it so extraordinary. Jesus will transform in our lives... He is a new wine. He is our everlasting joy. 
by believing in him, repenting of our sins, and following him. To make this decision to follow him is not just the best decision we could ever make, but the wise decision we could ever make. I'm going to say if anybody in this room is not a Christian, if you do not know Jesus as your savior, if you don't know him as that new wine, I said, basically, you need to get down on your knees. He's calling you right now. You need to acknowledge that you are sinful. You need to acknowledge that you need your sins forgiven and ask for his forgiveness. You need to take up your cross and you need to follow him. Because he is the savior of his people and he has come to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus talks about coming back in that verse in Revelations where I mentioned about the the marriage supper of the lamb. He is coming back. My question is, the bridegroom will return at the marriage feast of the lamb, but will his bride be ready? That's where I'm going to leave that. Thank you very much.